0: اما بعد فان اصدق الحديث كتاب الله وخير الهدي هدي محمد صلى الله عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم وشر الامور محدثاتها وكل محدثه وكل بدعه ضلاله وكل في النار اما بعد it brings me great pleasure to be with my brothers and our community here in Manchester in the United Kingdom today the 23rd of June in the year 2019 which coincides with uh, the 20th of Shawwal in the year 1440 after the Hijrah of Allah's Messenger It's uh, tremendous that which the brothers have organized today here at Markaz Salafi in the sense that they've actually made the conference an academic scientific conference in the sense that they've chosen a topic which is very focused upon the creed and the aqeedah and the belief of Ahlul Sunnati wal Jama'ah and the topics are not just generalized topics because normally conferences, they normally take a general approach. But our brothers here, they decided and I think it is needed from time to time to take a more academic detailed approach even though the time is very limited, because some of the topics here, you know, can be taught over months if not years, you know, the names and attributes of Allah, just the study of the likes of the Aqeedah of al uh, Islam, Ibn Taymiyyah, Aqeedah al or Tadmuriyah, or Al-Hamawiyyah, any of those books could easily take, you know, several years to complete if a person was to go through detail, or just reading something from Ibn in the two volumes, of the explanation of the names and attributes because could easily take three or four years to teach if he was taught, you know, twice a week or once a week. But here, I think what the brothers have tried to do is knowing the people that we are speaking to and the fact that all of us, or many of us, that we confront people with foreign ideologies and contradictory ideologies and beliefs to Ahl Sunnati Wal So therefore, how does one respond to those doubts? Meaning that not in terms of that we're waiting for them to bring their doubts so we can argue with them. No, from the aspect of when those doubts come to you, then internally, what is your response? You know, if your family brings them to you, what is the response? So quite often, these types of topics are missed because we are assuming that a lot of people, they attend the durus, which is the asal, of course. The origin is that you attend durus and that that you attend gatherings of knowledge with these types of books, like Kitab al-Tawheed, or the Tafsir of the Qur'an, or, for example, uh, Al-Aqidat al-Wasatiya, or al hamawiya or Tadmuriya, or uh, Qawaid al of Shaykh ibn Thaimin, that they are taught. But the reality is that we have here, before us, the whole of the masjid is filled and packed with brothers and sisters. Extra rooms have been opened up, and facilities have been placed outside of the masjid to accommodate the people. You don't get these numbers at a normal dars. So the brothers, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward them. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward them that they realize and they and they came to the conclusion, well, here we have an opportunity to to reach out to the people with specific academic and scientific subject matters and which actually places a challenge upon the speakers because now we have to really bring it down and summarize the particular topics. Yes. Like, for example, the deviations of the Brailwiyah, the Quburiya, Sufiya, in their translation of the Qur'an. How do you cover that in 45 minutes or an hour? But that's the challenge of our brother, Dr. ila al-Lahmami. Evidences for the, for the Ulu of Allah, you know, the issue of Ulu. Volumes have been written by the Salaf, summarized by some of the later Salaf in the issue of ulub, and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is ba'in min khalqihi, that he is distinct from his creation. We our brother Abu Iyad, Amjad Rafiq, Dr. Abu Iyad, that he had to make that concise to make it digestible and palatable to the listener. And then our brother Uwais Tawil, likewise, the seeing of Allah yawmul qiyamah, which has underlying principles of the names and attributes of Allah and the sifat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then my topic itself, which is a refutation of the Ash'ari creed. How do you do that in 45 minutes? You can't incomplete, and the fact is that you can't. But what you can do is that you can summarize it, bring it to a point, hoping that we, the speakers, that we are complementing each other. So when these lectures are listened to after the end of this conference, that they listen together collectively because you may pick up some principles in one that are not mentioned by another because of time constraints. And likewise, after uh, uh, my lecture, we have our brother Abu Idris and then look at Abu Hakim, Hafidhahullah Ta'ala, benefits from al ala al-bishar al-marisi. How do you bring that to the people? Normally you can't, you know, but he, it's a challenge for him that he has to bring it now to make it Acceptable to the people so they understand what Imam Darmi rahimahullah ta'ala was saying with his rad upon this individual known as Bishr al-Mirisi, this innovator uh, who predates, actually, you know, some of the, some of the, uh, from some of the aimatul Huda. But our brother Abu Hakim has to bring, as he has said, benefits from the book. Enough so that the people walk away understanding the Aqeed of Ahlul Sunnati Wal Jama'a' with regard to the names and attributes of Allah, and the fact that the self of this Ummah would not tolerate contradictions in this aspect of the Tawheed of Allah, because the names and attributes commander, the Tawheed of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, is one of the categories of Tawheed, the Tawheed of al Asma Wa Sifat. So I begin with the issue of the Ashairah, and the Ash'ari Madhab, and the Aqeed of Ahlu Sunnati Wal Jama'a' with regard to the names and attributes. So the story really begins because the, 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 the name itself or the title itself of the lecture it tells you that we're talking about an individual known as Al-Ash'ari because the era, the Ash'aris follow an individual in history called Al-Ash'ari and he was of course Abu'l-Hassan Al-Ash'ari but actually the story begins before him and that is with an individual known as Abdullah ibn Kullab the more that you stay with the, with the dars the more the jigsaw puzzle comes together and we come to a point at the end. So the initial uh, aspects of this lecture that I speak about, it is important that attention is paid so that then you understand where this is leading to at the end. And why Ahlul Sunnati Wal Jama'ah, the salaf of this ummah, and the great scholars in every age and every generation gave so much importance to the issue of the names and attributes because it is a category from the categories of Tawheed and denial of the names and attributes of Allah in totality, render a person to be outside the fold of Islam, because it is to describe Allah with nothingness. To say Allah has no names, no attributes, then that is to describe Allah with nothingness, as we shall make clear. So let us begin with an individual whose name was Abdullah ibn Kullab. He died in the year 240 after the hijrah. Imam Ahmed died when? 241. He's from that era. His name is Abdullah ibn Kullab. Died in 240. We know that from the defenders and from the vanguards of Ahlul Sunnati wal Jama'a in protecting the, uh, protecting the religion from the pollution of the Jahmiyyah, <coughs> the one who was the figurehead of his era. And the great Imam of Ahlul Sunnati wal Jama'ah was Imam Ahmed ibn Muhammad ibn Hanbal, rahimahullah, died 241. This individual Abdullah ibn Kullab was from the era. Died in the year 240, it is him. This individual is where the Ash'aris derive their madhab, even though they call themselves Ash'aris, ascribing themselves to a person who came actually a century later, who is Abu Hassan al Ash'ari. But in actuality, this is where the ideology <coughs> of the Ash'aris came. Then you say, Well, Ash'aris, how does that affect us today? The majority of the Muslims today. Who ascribe themselves to Islam and they are Muslim, that the majority of them are upon the Aqeidah of Abu Hassan al-Ashari. Whether they call themselves Hanafi. If they are Hanafi, they're deriving their Aqeidah from Abu Hassan al-Ashari and the contemporary of Abu al Hassan al-Ashari. And that was Abu Mansur al-Maturidi. Right? From the era. Both of them are uh, uh, you know from the era and from the same time period whether they are Shafi'is, and they say we are Shafi'i but when you talk to them about their names and attributes you find that they are Ash'ari right, Abu'l Hassan al-Ash'ari died when? 324 so a century before Abu'l Hassan al-Ash'ari came Abdullah ibn Kullab died 240, Abu'l Hassan al-Ash'ari 324, the dates will be important for you to remember even, though, even, even, even if not in the exact sense but recognize the errors. So Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari died in 324 after the Hijra. The majority of the Muslims today follow his madhab under the guise, we are Hanafi, we are Shafi'i, or we are Maliki. The Hanabila generally the Hanbalis, in general were protected because of the strength of the Hanbali madhab in the issue of aqeedah that it was harder to pollute and attack in its early days. In the early centuries, it was hard to penetrate. It wasn't free from people penetrating it and infiltrating it and bringing the Aqidah of the deviants into it, but it was protected more than the other three madhabs. And all of these four madhabs the Hanafis and Malikis and Shafi'is and the Hanbalis that these are madhabs in essence in fiqh. Right? They are not madhabs in Aqeedah. Why? Because the, the because the Aqeedah for imams, does it differ? Did the belief in the fundamentals of the religion and Tawheed and Aqeedah, did it differ between Abu Hanifa and Malik and Shafi and Ahmed? We say no. It is possible, as he ascribed to Abu Hanifa, that he fell short and he fell into error with regard to the definition of Iman and the, and the understanding of Iman, meaning the definition of Iman itself. But in general, When we look at the other three Imams, including Abu Hanifa outside of this mistake of his, that they were united in their Aqidah. You could not tell the difference. If one of them spoke, it was like the other one was speaking. It was like the other one was speaking, like the other one was speaking. All four of them speaking with the same speech in the issue of Aqidah, names and attributes of Allah, the Ulu of Allah, the Highness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that he's above his creation and over the throne. The belief in the names and attributes of Allah that we take them upon their apparent meaning. And that we do not deny them and we do not negate them and we do not deviate from them and we do not make false ta'weel of them or tahrif of them and we do not resemble Allah to the creation and so on. And we do not say how with regard to the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we affirm all of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that every name of Allah carries with it a meaning and if it is muta'addi then it has an effect upon the creation such as the mercy of Allah has an effect upon the creation and so on. So they were all agreed upon these principles with regard to their belief in the hereafter, with regard to the punishment of the grave, with regard to the angels who would question in the grave. These uh, imma did not differ. Why? Because their aqidah was one. So where did the madhabs come from then? So when we talk about the mother of Abu Hanifa, the madhab of Malik, the madhab of Shafi'i, the madhab of Ahmad ibn Hanbal, we are not talking about these affairs. Because in these affairs they did not differ. Their usul in their aqidah was one. And they were agreed upon it. But they differed in affairs of fiqh, where the Sahaba they differed. So you find that some of the Sahaba, they differed in their modality of prayer. Into certain minute aspects of the prayer, they differed. So the Immah that followed them, the imams that followed them, they differed also based upon what they held to be authentic. From the hadith of Allah's Messenger ﷺ, or how they understood what the Sahaba, Allahu anhum, were conveying after the Sahaba spread into the different lands. A Sahabi in Azerbaijan, a Sahabi in Syria. In Sham, a Sahabi in Yemen, a Sahabi in Egypt, a Sahabi in Baghdad, a Sahabi in Khorasan. The Sahaba, they spread. So when the Sahaba, they spread, they took the knowledge of Rasulullah with them. So a Sahabi may have understood something from the Prophet Sallallahu in an aspect of fiqh or inheritance, or an aspect of fasting, or an aspect of the prayer, or an aspect of business contracts. The and Sahabi in another place may have differed. With him, with him in that issue because that sahabi may not have heard the hadith that this sahabi ha- heard that's possible it can happen today with the ulama so it happened with the sahaba so they passed that knowledge on to their students and the sahaba were mushtahidun, that they were scholars of ijtihad so they acted upon the ayat that they knew the hadith that they knew and they gave rulings based upon it so the people that they were teaching and the Fatwa that they were giving were based upon the knowledge that they had but did they? is there room, for example, in ikhtilaf in the usul of the aqeedah No. So all of the sahaba have held that Allah will be seen yawm al-qiyamah, the ru'ya, they believed in it. They never differed in that, the sahaba. So you don't find one sahabi saying to another sahabi, actually Allah will not be seen yawm al-qiyamah. None of the sahaba, one sahabi, would not say to another sahabi, there's no questioning in the grave by munkar al-nakir. Never. Why? Because their aqidah, they were united upon. Why? Because the religion that Allah's Messenger ﷺ was sent with, that it established that foundation in their aqidah and tawheed. Established without differing. So the Sahaba did not differ. But in aspects of fiqh, they may have differed. Because they're making inshallah. Two, two Sahaba went on a journey. Both of them wait, woke up after the night in a state of Janaba. What are they going to do? They know about tayammum. If, you, if the water is not available, what do you do when you wake up in a state of Janabah and no water is available? One of them, he made tayammum. Because that's his ishtihad. He said, well, if we don't have wudu, we make tayammum. We're in a state of Janabah, sexual impurity. I'm going to make tayammum. The other one, he said, no, oh, there must be, maybe there's something more that needs to be done. What did he, do? he rolled around in the, in, the, in the soil? So the Prophet ﷺ, that he affirmed both of them. But for one is two rewards, and for the other there is one reward. Why? Because they mujtahid. They're scholars. So the one who was incorrect out of those two opinions, which is the one who rolled in the soil, because he, from ijtihad is that tayammum, which is a simple thing of striking the ground, wiping your face, wiping your hands, then that is for wudu. But what do you do for Janazah must be from ijtihad, it should have been extra. So he rolled in the soil. Or in the sand. When they went back to the Prophet he informed them with regard to their affair and he affirmed the correctness. For one there is one, and for the other there is two rewards. For the one who is incorrect, there is one reward. For the one who was correct, there is two rewards. How do you give a reward to the one who is incorrect? Because his reward is for his ijtihad. For his striving to seek the truth, one reward. For the other one, there is two rewards. One reward for his ijtihad, one reward for the correct conclusion. That's for the scholars and for the Sahaba عنهم, and for the scholars till this time. Now, in the issue of the Aqeedah and the usul and the Tawheed, is there such a thing between the Sahaba? Never. Because they were agreed. You don't go to the grave of the dead and seek aid from the <coughs> dead. The Sahaba عنهم, never differed as Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah, and others and Imam Al-Zahabi. They have mentioned that the Sahaba عنهم, never differed with regard to the ulu of Allah. That Allah is the most high. That, the arsh, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is above his arsh, distinct and separate from his creation, and he is from his name's Al-Ali. So when we talk about the madhabs, what we are talking about in the early days, when the madhabs were present in the time when they appeared, or the imams they appeared rather, like Abu Hanifa and Malik and Shafi and Ahmed, Ibn Hanbal, Allah ta'ala that when they appeared, they're differing when we say the madhab of Ahmed in that time. We're not talking about him differing in aqeedah with Shafi'i. Or with Malik. Or with Abu Hanifa. We're not talking about differing in Aqeedah. Their differing was like the differing of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum based upon the evidence that they had from the Kitab and the Sunnah. In the affairs of the Faroo' and the Umur Ijtihadiya. Those affairs that had some room for maneuver in affairs of fiqh. And the branches of the religion, and they differed. But in the usul of the aqidah, they did not differ. A person may come along and say, Well, actually, they did. Because the sahaba, they differed what was created first. And the early salaf, they differed as to what was created first. Was it the pen or the arsh? They say, Look, there's a difference in usul. Is that a difference in usul? No. The difference in usul would be, We don't believe that Allah created the arsh or the Arsh is metaphoric, it is not a real entity, or the Qalam is something symbolic of Allah's will, then that is a problem. But as for the Salaf differing as to what came first and what came second, it's not differing in the Usul. Why? Because all of the Salaf of this Ummah, the Sahaba and those who came after them, the At-Tabi'een, at tabi'in, the, the Huda, they all agreed that the Arsh is a creation, And the pen is a creation. They all agreed that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is above the arsh. And the arsh is a real created entity by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And its meaning is the throne. And Allah is above it. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the qalam. And they all agreed that Allah created that which is called the qalam, the pen. And then Allah said to the pen, uktub, write. And the pen said, what shall I write? And Allah said, write all of the pre-decree till Yomul qiyamah. So the pen it wrote it. Sahaba differ? No. Salaf differ? No. Did the four imams differ? No. So what did they differ upon? They differed upon the wording of the hadith as to which of the two was created first. Because the Prophet ﷺ said that 50,000 years before the creation of the heavens and the earth, Allah created the pen. And then Allah said to the pen, write. And the pen said, what shall I write? And Allah said, write everything that will occur from now till yawm al-qiyamah. kana al And then Allah's Messenger said, and his throne was above the water. (coughs) So now, how do we understand this hadith? Did the throne come after the creation of the pen, after that 50,000 years, before the creation of the heavens (coughs) and the earth? So Allah created the pen and then the throne. Or is Allah saying that 50,000, or the Prophet saying that 50,000 years before the creation of the heavens and the earth, that Allah created the pen, but the throne was already there because Allah's, Allah's Messenger ﷺ said kana arshuhu," And his throne was over the water. So the Sahaba did not differ with regard to the pen. They did not differ with regard to the water. They did not differ with regard to the arsh. The only thing they differed was upon the awliya. Was the water first? Was the pen first? Or was the arsh first? This is not an issue of the usul of the aqid of Ahlul Sunnah. Because the usul of the aqid of Ahlul Sunnah is that all of these three were real and they were all created and they were all present. Which one came first? Then their reality is that Allah knows best. But the scholars, they spoke about what came first because they will speak. They say, no, the hadith states that the pen came first. This is the position of Shaykh Al-Albani and those that he took from from the Salaf. A group of them said, no, the arsh came first. President position of Ibn Thaymeen and the scholars that came before him. But both of them agreed the Arsh was a creation and Allah is above it. Ar-Rahmanu al-Arsh istawa. The most merciful has ascended over his Arsh. So they affirm the Arsh. The only thing that they differ upon is which one came first. That's not in the Usul. That's an issue of the Faroo' from the Usul. It's an issue of a branch from a fundamental. But the fundamental is agreed upon. Will Allah be seen yawm al-Qiyamah? Has that lecture already done, right? Allah will be seen yawm al-Qiyamah. We all agree. Right? Because it's Allah will be seen Yawmul Qiyamah The question is Did the Prophet Sallallahu Wasallam See Allah Or not see Allah Whilst he was alive And did he see him With his eyes Or did he see him With his heart That's the difference Of opinion amongst the scholars But the Ru'ya itself The seeing of Allah Yawmul Qiyamah Is not differed upon By anyone from the Sahaba Radiallahu Anhum What did they differ upon A group of them said that the Prophet never saw Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala with his eyes. A group of them said he never saw him and they kept it general. A group of them said that he never saw him with his eyes but he saw him with his heart. But the issue of the Ru'ya, the seeing of Allah yawmul Qiyamah, do they differ? What do they differ about? Whether the Prophet saw him or not. So the actual Ru'ya is the asal of the issue. That's the Aqeedah. That's the foundation and the asal. In the Aqeed of Ahlul Sunnati Wal Jama'ah, whoever denies that, after knowing the ahadith and the ayat and the ijma'ah, then he has left the fold of Islam. If he denies it. After knowing, meaning after the after he understands and he has not understands, but he has been shown the proof and the <coughs> proof has been made clear to him. If he denies the ru'ya after that, that Allah will be seen, Yawm al Qiyamah, after the Al-Hujjah, he has left the fold of Islam. Why? Because he has denied. Something from the Usul of the aqidah, after the Iqamatul Hujja, hujjah after the ayat, which I'm sure the brother mentioned in his dars, after the ahadith. All right? So therefore in the Usul of the aqidah, sahabah did not differ. The only thing they differed upon, did the Prophet see him or not see him whilst he was alive in this world? That's the difference. Meaning that when you ascended in the night of Isra and Mi'raj, did he see Allah or not? A group said yes, a group said no. A group said no, he saw him with his heart, meaning you know Allah he saw Allah in a vision from his heart, but he did not see him with his eyes, and so on. So the aqeedah is agreed upon. So when these madhabs came later, like today, they say, What are you? He says, I'm Hanafi. <laughs> right? <laughs> he says I'm Hanafi. <laughs> Hanafi in what? He says, I'm Hanafi in fiqh. I follow the Hanafi madhab. But in aqeedah, I am Maturidi. All right? Jayed. In Aqidah, he says, I am Maturidi. He says, in Tariqa, I am Naqshbandi. So far, we've got three. Alright? <coughs> in my political outlook, <coughs> I am Ikhwani. So now, all of a sudden, Where's the Hanafi underneath all of that? Underneath all of that mess? Where's the Hanafi in you? Why can't you be Hanafi in Aqeedah? Hanafi in Fiqh? Hanafi in Outlook? Hanafi in tariqa, And then you will find that when you hear what Abu Hanifa said, you'd actually be Salafi, because Abu Hanifa was upon the way of the Salaf and Sahaba, just like the Shafi'is and the Malikis. Uh, there's an innovator in the, in, in the United States of America. He says, I am Maliki in Madhab, meaning fiqh. Sahawardi in Tariqa, Sufi, Quburi, grave worshipper. So, as it relates to my spirituality, he is Sahawardi. Right? And then he carries on layer upon layer upon layer, adding, he says in Aqidah, I am Ash'ari. So, he is Shafi'i. Sahawardi uh, was the third one? Huh? Ash'ari and fourthly he will say that I am tablighi on top of all of that. Why the layers on top of the Imam's madhab? If you are following the Imam's madhab then what the year did we say that Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari died? 324. Alright? Imam Shafi he died 204. Nearly a century and a half before, a century and more, before Abu hassans appearance, Abu hassan al-Ash'ari, Imam al-Shafi was the mujadid, imam, al hadith, al sunnah, from the mujadidun of his, from the mujadideen of his era, Mujaddid, the reviver of the deen of his time, Imam al-Shafi'i. So why would you take Imam al-Shafi'i in fiqh, how you make wudu and how you pray, but you're not going to take the aqeedah of Shafi'i? Shafi'i wasn't Ash'ari. <laughs> how can Shafi'i be Ash'ari? When 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 Abu Hassan al-Ashari came a century after him. How is that possible? You're following a man who hasn't appeared yet? So Shafi was an ashari. He was not an ashari. So why don't you take in aqeedah bi shafi'i in fiqh bi shafi'i? And when what did Shafi'i say? If you find my opinion contradicting the opinion of contradicting the hadith of Allah's Messenger, then take my opinion and throw it against the wall and go to the hadith of Allah's Messenger. Then you'll be true Shafi'i. If the Saha al Hadith, then Madhabi? As Imam Al-Shafi'i used to say, if the hadith is authentic, that is my Madhab. So now you can be Shafi'i in fiqh, you can be Shafi'i in aqidah, you can be Shafi'i in your manhaj methodology, which is not to rebel and not to follow the paths of Ikhwan al Muflisin or the Khawarij or the Mu'tazila and the, and the Shia and so on. Be Shafi'i in everything. What do you mean you're Shafi'i? Ash'ari, Sahwardi, Tablighi. And Ash'ari maturidi. maturidi. This is where Ahl Sunnati wal Jama'a don't have these layers to deceive the people with. We say we are Salafi. We say, what do you mean Salafi? We say Kitab, Sunnah, Sahaba, and the great Imams of the early Salaf. This is what we are upon. We say, ah, oh, but, uh, but you already agreed that the early Imams differed. Yes, they agreed and they differed in fiqh. So what do you do when they differ in fiqh? We say, we look at what the Imams have said. Whichever one brings the authentic hadith from Bukhari or Muslim, even though Bukhari and Muslim came after them, but the narrations, the Sahab, those uh, Imam narrated the narrations. If those narrations are authentic according to the muhadithin that came a century after them or a generation after them, like Imam al Bukhari died in 256 or Imam al Tirmidhi died in 279 and so on from the uh, I'ma, then we will take the hadith that is authentic from them. As long as that Madhab or that Imam gives his ijtihad, like those two Sahaba, the one who made tayammam by striking the hands of, and the one who rolled, which one is the haq out of the two? Answer me. Alright, the one who made tiamum. Do we now negate the virtue of the other sahabi and say, Waf, who was he? Do we say that? No. We say, no, he's rewardable. anhu, And we love him for the sake of Allah because he was an imam from the sahaba radiallahu anhum. Even if he was mistaken, why? Because he made ishtihal. But, w- but if the ishtihad was incorrect according to the Prophet sallallahu then what do we do? We go to Rasulullah. Is that not true? So when two Sahaba, they differ in doing something, then what did Allah command them to do? فَإِذَا تَنَازَأْتُمْ فَإِن تَنَازَأْتُمْ فِي إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرسُولِهِ If you differ in any affair between yourselves, then refer it back to Allah and His Messenger sallallahu So the Salafi is complete in his understanding of all of these affairs. This is the first first point at which all of those Ash'aris, Sufis, Maturidis and whatever layers that they have, to be Bandi and whatever they have, all of that we strip it away. That's why the Salafi doesn't accept the title of Wahhabi. We're not Wahhabi. We are Salafi because we follow the Salaf, Sahaba, Rasulullah, Sahaba and the early generations we don't ascribe ourselves if we are not going to ascribe ourselves to Imam al- Shafi'i and say we are Shafi'i and everything Shafi'i <coughs> blindly even if he's mistaken no we don't accept that not from Shafi'i not from Malik not from any of them though we love them and we revere them ta'ala <laughs> but as it relates to this if we are if we do not take a single one of them to be followed and every single and all of those great imams are greater than uh, uh, sheik al-Islam Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab rahimahullah <laughs> they're greater than him because they are from the earlier generations. That's why the Salafi won't say, we are Albaniyun We are not Albaniyoon. We are Salafi. Or we are Sunni. Or we are Athari. Because all of these terms refer to the same thing. And we are not definitely not Wahhabi. Though we love Sheikh islam Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab. Just as we love Muhammad Idris al-Shafi'i. Just as we love Ahmed bin Muhammad ibn Hanbal. Yes, we love these A'imma, but... We do not take a single person that you can call. That's why the Salafi get he, he, will, he will become upset that you call, that he's called Wahhabi. Not, that, not, because we dis, not because we have a problem with Shaykh Al-Islam Muhammad ibn because we read his books and we teach his books. Just like we teach the books of, of, of Abdul Ghani al-Maqdasi, and we teach the books of Imam al-Barbahari, and we teach the books of Ahmed ibn Hanbal, and we teach the books of Shaykh Al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah and ibn Qayyim. But, I'm not, but we are not blind followers and that we have ta'assub to towards one that now we are labeled with that label or that we are happy with that label unlike them. That they are happy to be called Ash'ari which is the madhab of Bid'a. Shaykhul Islam Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab is upon the Sunnah and we don't accept being called Wahhabi. Though he is upon the Sunnah. The madhab of Abu al al-Ash'ari is upon bid'ah, and they're proud to announce it to the people. How is that even possible? It's tanāqūd. It's contradiction. Let's go back to Abdullah ibn Kullab. Because that's where the story begins. Imam Zahabi rahimahullah mentioned regarding him in his seer al Nubala. Imam Dhabi has a voluminous work, over 30 volumes, where he narrates the stories and the lives of the notable people in history. So he mentions Abdullah ibn Kullab. He said he was a leader of the people of theological rhetoric, the Mutakallimeen. متكلم- so he was the leader, the imam of the Mutakallimeen, the people of rhetoric, meaning innovative speech, of Basra, in his time. And his name was Abdullah bin Sa'id ibn Kullab al-Qattan al-Basri. He had some writings refuting the Mu'tazila. So he refuted other sects of bid'ah, Though he himself was upon bid'ah. And perhaps, even though he was refuting them, he agreed with them in aspects. Dawood al zahiri learnt Kalam and rhetoric from him. As was stated by Abu Tahir al-Dhuhali. It is said that Al-Harith al-Muhasabi, who was refuted by Imam Ahmed. Remember, this is the era of what? Ahmed ibn Hanbal. It is said that Al-Harif al-Muhasibi, who became an opponent of Imam Ahmed, that he studied the sciences of logic and debate from Abdullah ibn Kullab. This is all from Imam al-Dahabi. Summarize. He was called Ibn Kullab. That became his name, meaning that, that's what he was generally known as. He was able, due to his eloquence, to debate and to draw his opponent to himself, meaning to his opinion and to his logic and to his debating skills. His followers were known as the Kullabiyya. They are the followers of Abdullah ibn Kullab. Some of them some of them consider Abu'l-Hassan al-Ash'ari to be among them. Ibn Kullab would refute the Jahmiyyah. See, what's happening here is that they're refuting each other, the various sects. So Ibn Kullab is refuting the Mu'tazila though he has some of the ideas of the Mu'tazila. He is himself teaching logic and rhetoric in opposition to the Kitab and the Sunnah to some of his students from them, Al-Muhasibi. Abu'l-Hassan al-Ash'ari, who came, who died a century later, that he, it is said that he is from them, from the Kullabiyya. Ibn Kullab would refute the Jahmiya. He believed Ibn Kullab, that the Qur'an was a singular entity established with the self of Allah, not tied neither to the ability of Allah nor to the Mashiah of Allah, nor to the will of Allah. So he believed that this, is, this was the Qur'an. And then Imam al dahabi said, no one ever had preceded him with this aqidah that he brought from himself. He said this in order to resist those who said that the Qur'an was created. So what was his idea? I want to refute the Jahmiyyah. I want to refute the Mu'tazila. So what did he do? Instead of following the mazhab of Ahlul Sunnah, he used logic and kalam to come, with the, come up with this idea. He believed that the Qur'an was a singular entity established with the self of Allah, kalam nafsi. And it was not tied, meaning the Qur'an itself is not connected to the ability, nor the will of Allah. It is just a singular entity with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is exactly what the Ash'aris say today. Where did they get it from? Abu Hazm al-Ash'ari? Or Ibn Kullab? Ibn Kullab. Ibn Hajar rahimahullah ta'ala, he mentioned in Lisan al-Mizan, volume 4, summarized from him, from Al-Hakim in his, ta- his tariq, that Ibn Khuzayma rahimahullah ta'ala, from the great A'imma of Aqeedah and Sunnah and Hadith, of his time, Ibn Khuzaimah rahimahullah. that Ibn Khuzaimah used to criticize the madhab of the Kullabiyah, the followers of Abdullah ibn Kullab and he said, Ibn Khuzaimah said that Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal was the severest of people in criticism of Abdullah ibn Kullab and his students, so who refuted him? Imam Ahmed refuted Abdullah ibn Kullab it is said that he was called Ibn Kullab because he was able to seize the one who he was debating with. So he would look for loopholes in their argument because he's a debater. He knows how to debate. Right? He studied debate and logic and argumentation. So when he was in front of a person, he knew, even if they speak with the Quran and Sunnah, I will use my skills in debate and manipulation to turn the argument and seize the one who I'm talking to. That's why the Salaf you say, don't argue with the people of Kalam. Because they've studied debate and logic and argumentation. They learnt it from the writings of the Greeks and so on, from the light writings of Plato and Aristotle and so on. So they learned how to debate and how to argue. So a person is coming to you with a hadith and the person is a sincere person. This is a hadith and this is the ayah. So what he wants to do, he wants to now break down the ayah and start manipulating its meaning and its wording from language, from logic, from intellect, from cosmology, from looking at the universe. And before the man he said, I only quoted you a hadith. Where are you going with this? All right. This is how they used to do. This is what they used to do. So Imam Ahmed refuted him. As ibn Khuzayma said he was refuted. Ibn Kulab was refuted by Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal. And Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal refutes you. What does that make you? In aqidah. That makes you a person of deviation. Why? Because that was the era of the rise of the Mu'tazila. Under which scholars were killed and tortured and beaten and imprisoned. In the issue of what? In the issues of Asma wa Sifat, in the Tawheed of Allah's names and attributes. So Ibn, when, when Imam Ahmed came and Ibn Kullab was calling to what he was calling to, Imam Ahmed refuted him, and he refuted Al-Muhasibi, and he refuted anyone who was upon the Aqeed of Ibn Kullab. As for the claim, and then he mentions, to skip because of the timing, in the biography of Sheikh Al-Islam, Muhammad bin Ishaq Al-Siraj, He was the muhaddith or the scholar of hadith of Khorasan of his time and he died in 313 after the hijrah. We're still talking early times. Imam Zahabi said that Abu Sa'id ibn Abi Bakr said that when the affair of the Kullabiyya struck the city of Naysabur, which is east of Iraq, when the idea and the ideology of Ibn Kullab in opposing the aqidah, look what he said about the Qur'an. He brought an idea about the Qur'an and a belief about the Qur'an that no one had ever said before him. But now this methodology and this ideology that he's spreading of tahrif and distortion and, and, and changing that which the Qur'an and that which the sunnah, sunnah speaks with regard to the aqidah, differing from the likes of Imam Malik, differing from the likes of Ahmed ibn Hanbal, differing from the likes of the sahaba and the tabi'een. Saeed ibn musayyib and Ibn Awn and Ayyub al-Sakhtiyani. Now he's come with something new. That's just one example with what he said about the Quran. That it is a singular entity. And Allah does not speak with will. Rather it was a single ent- entity with Allah. Established with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In the self of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this now becomes widespread. By 1313, Ibn Qulab dead. Died in when? To what? 240. Imam Ahmed has passed away ta'ala. So now the ideas of Ibn Kullab are being carried by his students and by a group of individuals who followed this, the mutaqalimeen the and the, you know what, what, what they understood from Ibn Kullab of kalam and rhetoric and so on. So these i now have to deal with these muqtadi'ah, with these ahlul bid'ah that they've come with this new aqidah that Imam Ahmed didn't know of. And he, in fact, that which he knew of it, he refuted it. So in Sabur, when the fitna of Kullabiyah struck, Muhammad bin Ishaq al-Siraj, this Sheikh al-Islam, this Imam who died in 313, he said that I will not, I will not narrate to the children of the Kullabiyah. I will not narrate to them, I will not teach them. Why? Because if I teach them, and they learn something of the Sharia, their parents will take them away and build them Upon the ideas of Kullabiyya, upon the ideas of Ibn Kullab. So they'll have knowledge of the Sharia, they'll have the, 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 the thinking in Aqidah of the Kullabiyya, and they will use it as a weapon against Ahlul Sunnah. So he said, I'm not going to teach them. Up until he said, Up until he made them stand and he would test them first. He would make imtihan of them. So he said, Meaning Abu Sa'id, Ibn Bakr, uh, Ibn Abi Bakr. Abu Sa'id ibn Abi Bakr, he said, so I was a young boy at the time. So he said to me, and he made me stand up. al Islam, Muhammad ibn Ishaq al-Siraj, he made me stand up. And he said to me, repeat after me, I am free in front of Allah from the Kullabiyya. He made the children say that. Say, I am free in front of Allah from the Kullabiyya. He said, I was a young boy and I said to him, if I was to say that, my father would not give me bread to eat. So then, Muhammad bin Ishaq, al-Siraj, he started laughing at the boy. And he said, this one, leave him alone. He's with us, yani. He's just If he says it, he's, he won't even get food in his house. But the point is, that the A'imma of the Salaf, that they understood where this methodology and where this Aqeedah is leading. So Ibn Kullab, Kullab, Abdullah ibn Kullab, was not upon the aqidah of Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal. Who was the measure of the time? Imam Ahmed. Imam Ahmed was the one who faced the Mihna of the Qur'an being created. He was the one who was beaten and imprisoned for 18 months. And he was tortured. (coughs) And they wanted to kill him. Imam Ahmed, over and over again, he suffered, but he remained steadfast. So, Ibn Kulab was not upon the aqidah of Imam Ahmad, and the proof that you, ibn Muhammad, refuted him, He was not upon the Madhab of the Salaf. Ibrahim bin Ahmed, Ibn, Sha- ibn Sha- Shaqala, Al hambali who died in 369, now we're moving 120 years after the death, or thereabouts, after the death of Ibn Kulab. He was talking to a person who was upon the Aqeedah of Ibn Kulab, and his name was. Abu Sulaiman al-Damishqi. So even Shaqalah said to him, he narrated to him the hadith of Sulaiman, the hadith of Abu Sulaiman, narrated to Abu Sulaiman, this uh, follower of Ibn Kullabi, he narrated to him the hadith of Anas ibn Malik, the companion radiallahu anhu. Where the wherein the Prophet said that indeed between the two fingers of Allah the, the hearts are between the two fingers of Allah and He turns them as He wills that the hearts are between the two fingers of Allah so abu sulaiman who was upon the aqeedah of ibn kullab now this is when over a century after ibn kullab showing that the idea the ideology has spread so ibn so abu sulaiman said to him but those two fingers of Allah are his two bounties so ibn shaqala said to him he said to him does the narration mention that the two fingers are the two bounties of Allah? He said this to rebuke him. Like, why have you added a wording into the hadith that isn't there? The hearts are between the two fingers of Allah. You've just said those two fingers are the two bounties of Allah. Where did you get the two bounties from? The hadith doesn't say that. He said no, it doesn't say that. So he continued. The two hands. So he, he corrected him and then he rebuked him. He said the two hands are attributes of Allah's self, of Allah's that. And no one proceeded in what you have just said except Abdullah ibn Kullab al-Qattan. He is the one whose madhab that you have embraced. How dare you add two bounties, that the two hands of Allah are the two bounties of Allah. You've taken this from ibn Kullab and no consideration is given to the interpretation. You have mentioned that the hearts of the servants are between the two bounties of Allah, from the bounties of Allah. How dare or between the two fingers rather. That how dare you change that the, hearts of, that the hearts of mankind are between the two fingers of Allah. How dare you change that to mean that the hearts of mankind are between the two bounties of Allah. Allah, Allah's hadith, The hadith of the Prophet mentions <coughs> the fingers of Allah. You have mentioned the bounties of Allah. Where do you get the bounties of Allah from? You are following the madhab of Ibn Kulaab. So he refuted him. So then he continued, your madhab. Is, the speech, is that the speech of Allah contains no command or prohibition. No, no ambiguous verses, no abrogating verses, no abrogated verses. Because you believe that the speech of Allah cannot be heard. Because according to you, meaning Ibn Kullab, who you have taken from. Because according to you, Allah does not speak with a voice. And that Musa did not hear the speech of Allah with his own hearing. And you believe that Allah created within Musa an understanding with which he understood. That this is what your madhab is of Ibn Kulaab. Why? Because in each one of these points, he's refuting them. He's refuting them. So he said, in your idea, why? Because the Quran to them is one entity. And it is Qa'im. It is established with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah does not speak with a will. Allah does not, the Quran, was, rather, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that the Quran is not in accordance to the ability of Allah or the will of Allah. It is just one entity. Allah does not speak with a voice or with words or with letters. This is the belief of those qullabiyyah. So he said, if you are on this belief, then you have to say that no verse abrogated another verse. Because how does abrogation take place? Allah reveals a verse and then a situation comes. And Allah repeals that verse and replaces it with another verse. That's abrogation. How does that happen except by the will of Allah? Right, just like the, the, the manner in which alcohol was eventually, it was allowed and it was frowned upon. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded them not to approach approach the prayer whilst in a state of drunkenness. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prohibited it in layers. And yani in stages. According to you, if you... If you say that the Qur'an is a singular entity, then you hold that there's no abrogation. You also therefore must believe that the speech of Allah cannot be heard. Why? Because Allah does not speak according to them. So when Allah mentioned the Qur'an, that Allah spoke to Musa directly, you don't hold that Allah spoke to Musa directly. And you hold that Musa did not hear the speech of Allah even though Allah mentioned the Qur'an, that Allah spoke to Musa directly. And you believe, therefore, this is what the belief of them, is that Allah did not speak to Musa. The meaning of it is that Allah placed into the heart or within Musa, Allah created within him an understanding of what Allah wanted. Look what they have to deny. This is the kullabiyya. So when he, Abu Sulaiman saw what Ibn Kullab was upon, and he heard what this Sheikh was saying to him, of repulsive and ugly beliefs of Ibn Kullab, he said, I hope by opposing Ibn Kullab in this issue, I have opposed his madhab totally. Meaning that he, when he heard this scholar saying this to him, he left it. And he said, I agree, by me agreeing with you in this issue, I hope that I've just left Ibn Kullab and his madhab completely. This is in the tabaqat of al hanabila volume 2. So Ibn Kullab innovated the doctrine... Of the speech of Allah as a single entity. We're coming to Abu Hassan in a moment, inshallah. So Ibn Kulab invented the doctrine and the aqidah of the speech of Allah as a single entity, a single meaning, established and present with the that of Allah, without voice. They said Allah does not, did not speak with a voice and does not speak with a voice, and He does not speak with letters, which is what the Ash'aris today. And the kullabis of that time and of this time, this is what they refer to as kalam nafsi. Even today. They say, what about the the Qur'an? They say, yeah, kalam nafsi. This is what they're talking about. The thing that the Salaf used to refute and Ibn Kullab was refuted for. Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala stated in the 8th century, he died in 752. He said, Ibn Kullab came and he broke the ijma' of even Ahlul bid'ah. I that even Ahlul Bida wasn't upon what he was upon. He broke their Ijma' by innovating the affair of the speech established in the self, the Kalam Nafsi. And in that he also opposed the revelation, the naql meaning the revelation from Allah. And he opposed the aql, the intellect. And he opposed the Fitra, the innate nature. And he opposed the Urf of the Arabic language, the norms of the Arabic language. He came with something that was not known from anyone before him. And with this, he resembled the Christians in the affair of the Trinity. With these kind of like vague, you know, nothing, there's nothing defined in his aqeedah. Kalam nafsi. What do you mean kalam nafsi? Speak with the speech of the Quran and the Sunnah and the Sahaba and the early Salaf. This was Ibn Kullah. So Ibn Taymiyyah said, taala." he said, Al-Harith Al-Muhasibi, that he described himself himself to the saying of Ibn Kullab for this reason. And for this reason rather, so Al-Muhasibi came along and Muhasibi was in the same era as Ibn Kullab. Imam Ahmed now is waging a war against them. When they start talking about Kalam Nafsi, and that the speech of Allah is a singular entity. And Allah does not speak with words or with letters, or with a voice that was heard by the likes of Musa <laughs> or by Rasulullah sallallahu <laughs> on the night of, of Mi'raj. So Al-Harith <laughs> al-Muhasibi ascribed himself to the saying of Ibn Kullab. And for this reason, Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal ordered the Al-Muhasibi be boycotted. And Ahmed would warn against Ibn Kullab and his followers. So now, this is the foundation of the Ash'ari Madhab. But they don't call themselves kullabiyya today. What do they call themselves? We're ash'ari. And they say that the madhab of the ashaira is the madhab of Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah. You read it in their books. When they write their aqidah, they say that the madhab of Ahl-Sunnah is the madhab of the ashaira. The asharis are Ahl-Sunnah. How can the ash'aris be Ahl-Sunnah when Imam Ahmed refuted the founder of the ashaira, Abdullah ibn kullab, And the A'imma, they refuted them. And and I've just mentioned just a handful of narrations. Even though if we continued, it would take weeks just to finish that section. Let us now talk about the rise of abul Hassan al-Ash'ari himself because this is the Ash'ari Madhab. His early i'tizal and then his repentance from his false belief at the end of his life because he went through stages in his life. The Ash'ari Madhab follows the doctrine, of, the doctrine of kalam. The same theological rhetoric putting the Quran and the sunnah to their own intellect and their own ideas and their own you know, uh, f- philosophies and then coming up with their own aqeedah in opposition to the Sahaba anhum. So it appeared after the first three generations the Ash'ari Madhab. That's the first thing that you must understand. They know that and we know that. The Ash'ari Madhab by default And by necessity, appeared after the first three generations. Anyone know why? It's obvious. Because Abu hassan Ash'ari died? 329. So even if we assume that you are Ash'ari, because they say proudly, we are Ash'ari. So if you are Ash'ari, then when did Abu hassan Ash'ari die? 324. If he died in 324, then the madhab that you are following, and you say that it is his madhab, that we are following. We are Ash'ari in terms of our aqidah. Then you are following a man who came three centuries after Rasulullah. Right? So it is a late. It is three centuries later. They ascribe themselves to Abu Hasan hassan al-Ash'ari and they regard him as their founder. Founder of their madhab. Al-Ash'ari was a staunch Mu'tazali. Staunch Mu'tazali in his early years until he reached the age of 40. 40 years of his life. He was a Mu'tazali With the Mubtadi'ah, a Mubtadi'ah, an innovator refuted by Ijma'ah, by Ahlul Hadith and Ahlul Sunnah and the Mu'tazila, were finished in the eyes of Ahlul Sunnah, without exception. Finished. What was he for 40 years? Mu'tazili. That's 40 years of his life. Then around the year 300, he's 40 years old, then he switched to the Madhab of the Kullabiyyah. So he switched from an extreme ideology of the Mu'tazila, which is denial of the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Denial that the the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have a meaning, let alone that they have an effect upon the creation, they're in denial of that. Right, so they deny all of the attributes of Allah, and they deny the meanings of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the Mu'tazila. So now, he leaves that Madhab, and then he comes, what he sees to be more correct. Which is what? Ibn Kullab. So he said, okay, Ibn Kullab refuted the Mu'tazila and he came with his own ideas. I like those ideas, so he took them. So then he became Kullabi at what age? 40. So then he switched to the ideology of, of, of the Kullabiyya, which was, as we have mentioned above, founded by Abdullah ibn Kullab. Less than a century before Abu'l-Hassan changed. Right? What year did he die? 240. In 300, 60 years later... At the age of 40 he becomes, because he wasn't even alive when Ibn Kullab died. So 60 years later, after the death, 60 years after the death of Ibn Kullab, Abu al-Hasan al-Ash'ari is 40 years old. At the age of 40 he leaves the Mu'tazila and he becomes a follower of the ideology of Ibn Kullab. And we already know what Imam Ahmed felt about both the Mu'tazila and Ibn Kullab. And what Imam al-Bukhari felt about, or what he said about the Mu'tazila and what he said about the ideology of the Kullabiyya in their various writings and works, like the Aqeedah of Imam al-Bukhari and the Aqeedah of Sufyan al thawri Even though Sufyan al thawri came before Ibn Kullab, but he refuted the Mu'tazila, and they refuted the Jahmiya because the Jahmiyya came about, uh, uh, Jahm bin Safwan was executed in 128. His teacher, Jad ibn dirham was executed in 124 because of their bid'ah, because it became so prevalent and so dangerous that the rulers, they gave the ruling, these two have to be killed. So they executed Jad ibn Dirham, 124, and they executed uh, Jaham bin Safwani, 128. They were executed, both of them. But the remnants of their belief, it remained. And then, you know, as with normal bid'ah, all types of bid'ah. And you see today, someone comes with a bid'ah, three weeks later, it's morphed into something else. Right? So they bring a bid'ah, maybe in hijab or maybe in, in uh, some ideology. And before you know it, it's kind of like morphed into something else. This is Ahlul Bidah because Ahlul Bid'a, they have no... Ahlul Sunnah, we have Usul, Quran, Sunnah, Sahaba. So there's always something that we can fall back upon and say, no, it's there and it's not going any further. Ahlul Bid'a already have it in their head that you can change and flux and change and morph and metamorphosize it to anything that you want. So what stops them? There's no limit to Bid'a. We want to celebrate the birthday of the Prophet Sallallahu Why? Because it feels good. Okay. Actually, we'll do a disco to go along with it. Why not? Because if you're going to do one, why not move to the other? What stops you? If there's no limit and there's no fallback, then what prevents you? We're going to have a big birthday cake. And you've seen what they do with birthday cakes, right? If, if you haven't, it's crazy. You know, they'll bring like a big wedding cake that the kuffar have on their weddings, and they'll say, Well, they have big cakes on their weddings and birthdays. We love him even more. Our cake's going to be even bigger. And we'll put gulab jamuns on the top of it. <laughs> with candles. To, and they do. With candles coming out. And they light up the candles. One for each century since he passed away. Or once for, you know, one for every generation. And they'll stand there blowing it out. Why? Because there's no fallback, right? If you have nothing that stops you, then you're going to just carry on. So this is what happened with them. Once they start the jahmiya, the mu'tazila then they metamorphosize and they change and they adapt. And then they refute each other. Well, you shouldn't have gone that far. Why not? You went that far. Why can't I go any further? No, you went too far. Okay, I'll stay back. And I... Because there's no fallback, right? It's all about logic and argumentation, debating who can get, get the, the greatest number of followers. Whereas the Salaf, he says, and the scholar and the person of Hadith, al Hadith, he says, No, I just stop at the Hadith, Akhi? And they think you're boring. Right? They think, Well, why just stop at Hadith? Why not? Why can't we go any further? This is bid'ah, Either bid'ah or bid'ah ida'fiyah. Either they will take something from the revelation and distort it and add to it and make Bid'a out of it or they'll just invent from nothing. Like the birthday of the Prophet invented from nothing. Just plucked it out the air. Well, they have Christmas. Let's do Eid Milad. It's just plucked out the air. Right? Other types of bid'ah have a foundation meaning that they're trying to use something in the Sharia as a basis to do their bid'ah. So, this is what they did. Ibn Taymiyyah said, Rahimahullah. I will go. No, we have time. To start. Okay. Ibn Taymiyyah said, the saying that the Quran... The Ibn, this is the words of Ibn Taymiyyah refuting the kullabiyyah. The saying that the Quran is from eternity, not with a voice, not with letters, and it is not except a single entity or meaning present with the self of Allah then it is correct to state that this saying of the, of the, this is the saying of the ash'ariyah Because they admit to it, even now. Right? It is a single entity. Allah does not have a voice and Allah does not speak with a voice. Allah does not speak with letters. It is, a single, it is not except a single entity with the self of Allah. Then it is, then it is correct to say that this is the saying of the Ash'aris, the Ashariyah. But the first to utter this in Islam was Abdullah ibn Kullab. Ash'ari took it from, Abu Hasan. Ash'ari took it from him. Then Sheikh Al-Islam Ibn Taymiyyah said, and the Salaf and the Imams, the Salaf and the great scholars, they would affirm for Allah what is established with the self of Allah, with the ذات of Allah, of his attributes. And they affirm the actions of Allah that are connected to the will of Allah and his power. So they would establish for Allah Allah's attributes that are is <coughs> connected to the the, 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 uh, the the affirmed with Allah and established with the that of Allah, like Allah's hearing, Allah seeing that of Allah. Then there are those attributes of Allah that are connected to the will of Allah, to the mashia of Allah, like the ascending of Allah. Right, Allah's istiwa. You don't ulu already today, so Allah ascended over His throne. So the istiwa of Allah. And this attribute of Allah Istiwa is connected to the will of Allah. Allah does it whenever he wills. Whenever he wills, as he wills. The how we don't know. Because he never told us how he ascended over the throne as Imam Malik when he was asked by that innovator. He said, <laughs> When Imam Malik was asked, that Allah said in the Quran, the man said to Imam Malik, Allah said in the Quran that Allah has ascended over his throne. How did he ascend over the throne? So Imam Malik said, Al istiwa The istiwa, it is the ascending of Allah over the throne, it is known. majhul. How he ascended, it is not known. And I do not see you except as an in an, and an, uh, and to question the istiwa of Allah, the ascendant of Allah over his throne then this question is a question that is innovated. We just affirm what Allah has said. We don't say how. Your question is a question that is a bid'ah. I do not see you except as an innovator or in a narration as an evil person. Get out of my circle. Removed him. Because he knew that this man had come, maybe not for Imam Malik, but for the rest of the people to be deceived by him. So he removed him. But the, uh, Shaykh Islam Ibn Taymiyyah said that the salaf of this ummah would affirm for Allah... The attributes of the self for Allah, the attributes that are established with the that of Allah. And they affirm the actions that are connected to the will of Allah, like Allah speaks whenever He wills. But the, the speech of Allah is also from the attributes ذاتية. The sifat الذاتية, al- from the sifat الذاتية al- of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala meaning that Allah, Allah can never be ceased to be described with speaking. It is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks and He's never ceased to be described with the attribute of speaking. Allah sees, and he has never ceased to be described as being the all-seeing. Allah is the all-hearing, as Samir, and Allah has never ceased to be described as being the all-hearing. But as for al-istiwa, the ascension of Allah, and the nuzul of Allah, the descending of Allah, and the maji of Allah, the coming of Allah, yawmul qiyamah, then these are all connected to the will of Allah. Allah ascends when he wills, and Allah descends when he wills. When does Allah will to descend? When? The last, the last third of every night, Allah descends to the nearest heaven in the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Mutawatira. Hadiths are established in, in numerous narrations. And Allah descends on the day of Arafah, as is mentioned in one hadith. So then, Shaykh Al-Islam Ibn Taymiyyah mentioned that the Jahmiyyah denied both of this. They denied both of these, meaning the attributes of Allah that are established with the that of Allah. The, and the attributes of Allah... And the actions of Allah that are connected to the will of Allah and His power. The Jahmiyyah founder, what's his name? Jahm bin Safwan, executed, mentioned it, right? That's what I said at the beginning, you have to listen. He was executed. So what does he say? The Jahmiyyah denied both of this. So Ibn Kulab agreed with the Salaf that the Jahmiyyah are wrong. So Ibn Kulab, he agreed. With the salaf in the establishment of the eternal attributes of the self. So we agreed that the jahmiyyah were wrong, and he affirmed the eternal attributes of Allah. Like seeing, hearing, and so on. Because these are established with Allah, with His da'q, Never cease to be described with them, right? But he rejected the fact that they are attributes established with Allah that are connected to his will and power. So he accepted one half of what the salaf were upon and what the Quran and Sunnah calls to, and he rejected the other half. So, in one half, he rejected the Jahmi and the Mu'tazila. In the other half, he came up with his own ideas. Then, Shaykh al Islam ibn Taymiyyah mentions, and then came Abu Hassan al Ash'ari after him. And he was the student of Abu Ali al Jubai, the Mu'tazili. What did we say? Up until the age of 40, what was he? Mu'tazili. Abu Hassan al Ash'ari. Thereafter, Abu Hassan retracted from the saying of the Mu'tazila. He realized in the year 300, actually, 40 years I've been following these innovators, and I've been wrong. So he changed. So he refuted them. He explained their contradictions in many places. And he went to extreme lengths, al Islam said. He went to extreme lengths in opposition of them in the issue of Qadr and Iman and Al-Wa'ad, which is the promises of Allah, of reward. And the wa'id of Allah, which is the threats of Allah's punishment. Until they, due to this, ascribed to Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari. Meaning that when he refuted the Mu'tazila, because these are the arenas where the Mu'tazila went to extremes and in innovation. So he refuted them, he left them. But he did not just leave them, he left them and said, I know them. So he started refuting them. So he refuted them in their deviation, the affair of Qadr. And the affair of Iman. And the affair of the promises of Allah and the affair of the wa'id of Allah. right? Because these are other issues that the Mu'tazila, they fell into error with. So then what happened was, up until when they saw what he had done to them, they ascribed to Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari, they refuted him back, and they called him Murji, and Jabari, and from the waqifa, meaning in the issue of the Qur'an, those who do not take the position that they take. And in the arena of the attributes, al-ash'ari when he left the mu'tazila he took the path of ibn kullab that's what he did Abu Hassan al-ash'ari so this saying concerning the quran is the saying of ibn kullab what saying that the speech of allah or the quran is an and, and the speech of allah is kalam nafsi it is an entity established with the self of allah not connected to the will of allah allah does not speak when he wills because there's no attribute of allah or the action of allah that is connected to the will of allah We say that Allah ascended over the throne and Allah spoke to Musa when Allah willed to speak to Musa. They don't accept that. They don't say that Allah spoke to Musa when Allah willed. They said that Allah created into Musa an understanding. So they want to reject the fact that Allah spoke at a particular place and time and location with Musa. That's the belief. That's in the Quran. Right? He spoke to Musa at a particular location at a particular time, at a particular appointed, appointed location that Musa went to or Musa was going through. They reject all this because they say, no, what must have happened, because they rejected that side of the attributes of Allah, that Allah, Allah, Allah does what he wills whenever he wills in those attributes of Allah that are known as the sifat fi'liya, Meaning that Allah's they are attributes of Allah that Allah does whenever he wills. They said, no, there's no such thing as Allah doing what he wills whenever he wills. They don't accept that. Right, Whereas the salaf they did. The Quran speaks of that. The hadith speak of that. The sahaba speak of that. The tabi'een speak of that. The atba'u tabi'een speak of that. The books of aqidah of the salaf are filled with this. They don't want to accept it and there's a reason why. But that's a different discussion. right? So they came back and refuted abul Hassan al-Ash'ari when he left the Mu'tazila. So then abul Hassan al-Ash'ari thought, what next? So then he was convinced by Abdullah ibn Kullab. That's Abul Hassan al Ash'ari. So, so, the saying concerning the Quran, saying, this saying concerning the Quran is the saying of Ibn Kullab in origin. That the Ash'ari speak of today, in 2019, or in 1440. The Ash'ari still speak with this today. When you say, where do you get this from? What do they say? I wish, the, the Imam, Abul Hassan al Ash'ari, this is the of Ahl Sunnah. Whose is it really? Ibn kullab They got it from Ibn Kullab. Because he was the first one to speak with it. So when Abu hassan had nowhere else to go, when he left the Mu'tazila, he latched on to the Aqeelah of who? Abdullah ibn Kullab. So this is what Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah said. That this is the saying in its origin of ibn Kullab. And it is the saying of those who followed him. Such as Al-Ash'ari. Al-Ash'ari was a follower of ibn Kullab and others. Majmu' Fatah Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, volume 12. So the Kullabiyyah and then the Ash'ariyyah uh, the they tried to carve for themselves a niche between Ahlul Sunnah and the Mu'tazila. They don't want to come all the way to the people of Sunnah. And they don't want to be with the Mu'tazila. So they carved for themselves a niche between Ahlul Sunnah and the Mu'tazila. Ibn Taymiyyah, Imam Al-Dhahbi, Al-Miqrizi and others stated that Abu'l-Hasan Al-Ash'ari left the Madhab of the Mu'tazila and then he adopted the views of Ibn Kullab. Then Shaykhul Islam Ibn Taymiyyah stated... The closer a person is to the era of the salaf, the more knowledgeable he is in comprehending and transmitting that which is correct. So the closer you are, the more likely you are, as long as you take from those ai of hadith and sunnah and sahaba and tabi'een, the closer you are to being correct. And then Ibn Taymiyyah said, and I affirm this for the hanbali madhab. I affirm this for the hanbali madhab. That's what we said at the beginning. Out of the four madhabs, it was the one that was the most robust When the bid'ah came, it stood the firmest. It doesn't say that all of them did, because some of them did deviate. But, it was the madhab that was the closest to the hadith. And he was the fourth out out of the four imams. The latest of them. And the closest of them to the era of the compilation of the books of hadith. In authenticity and so on. From the students of Imam Ahmed was Bukhari. For example. Right? And Imam Shafi'i took from Imam Ahmed. And he praised Imam Ahmed for his knowledge. He goes, you have excelled me in hadith. So that was the era of Imam Ahmed. So the, the, the Hanbalis and the students of Imam Ahmed and those who came later, they were more robust in meeting the challenge of Ahlul Bidah. Why? Because they were closer to the hadith of Allah's Messiah and its authenticity. So al Islam Ibn Taymiyyah said, the clo- the, uh, and I affirm this for the Hanbali mother, and I can clarify that Al Ash'ari was from the students of the Mu'tazila. And then he repented from that. And then, and because he was a student of Al-Juba'i, the Mu'tazali. However, he left that for the path of Ibn Kulaab. Then he took knowledge, because now we enter into third stage of the life of Al-Ash'ari. Why? Because he's seeking the truth. He realizes I was wrong for 40 years. Then he comes to Ibn Kullab and he thinks I found the truth. Then he pumps into who? Scholars of Hadith. Scholars of Hadith. So he took knowledge in the science of Hadith from Zakaria Asaji saji in Basra. Then when he arrived in Baghdad, he took knowledge from the Hanbalis in Baghdad. In the subjects of religion. So now we enter the third phase of the life of who are we talking about. I just want to make sure you're still with me, right? Who? Abul Hasan Al-Ashari. We're entering into this is Shaykhul Islam Ibn Taymiyyah. So after being with the Mu'tazi for 40 years. Then he was with Ibn Kullab. Then he starts seeking knowledge of hadith because where else are you going to go after the Mu'tazila? Mu'tazila don't want hadith. He has now decided actually we need to go back to the revelation. Abu'l-Hassan al-Ash'ari. So he's listened to Ibn Kullab or listening to the, to the writings and the students of Ibn Kulab or what remains from his ideology that was widespread. And then he decides I want to seek hadith. So he starts seeking hadith and he ends up in Baghdad taking knowledge from the Hanbalis. Which is the most robust madhab in aqeedah? Hanbalis is the most resistant to bid'ah. Alright? And then he said, Shaykh al Islam al volume, Mujmul al volume 3, and this was the final affair that he died upon. And he himself and his companions stated this in their books. Right? So that's abul Hassan al-Ash'ari. That's who they claim that they're following. What we're doing? Ahlul ahl- al-Hadith. Quran, Sunnah, Hadith, Salaf. Look how they're meandering one place to another. Now, they go to Imam Abu'l-Hasan al-Ash'ari. Their Imam. They say, however... And this is what we say. However, the ash'aris of later times, up until today, take the doctrine of Al-Ash'ari when it was upon the madhab of who? Ibn Kullab. So the Ash'aris of today are in reality kulla'abiyyah. That's the haqq. That's what they're upon. So in reality they are kulla'iyah. In fact, they are worse than Ibn Kullab, since they adopted much of what Ibn Kullab refuted from the Jahmiyyah and the Mu'tazilah. In fact, the Ash'ari's of today, they're not Ash'ari. They are very much resemblant of Ibn Kullab. But actually in many areas, they've gone even worse than Ibn Kullab and they adopted the original ideas of the Mu'tazilah and the Jahmiyyah. That is why we do not read. They do not read rather. Meaning the Ash'ari's of today, they will not read the book of Abu hasan al-Ash'ari rahimahullah before he died because he entered into the third stage. In his third stage, he's writing now. Who's he refuting? He's refuting them. What he was upon before, he's refuting them. Obviously, he has remnants. You don't leave 40 years and then go to Ibn Kulab and then come to the hadith. Something of that was still stuck with him. But in his thinking and in his promotion of the aqeedah, he came straight. Even though he still fell into error because that was remnants. You know, things stick. If you've grown up upon something, it's hard to let it all go because some of that new knowledge hasn't come to you. So they reject, they don't even, when you tell them this hadith, why don't you follow the, the, the book of Abul Hassan al Ash'ari after his repentance? Why don't you read those books? So Abu Hassan al Ash'ari wrote a book entitled Al Ibana An Asoolu al-Diyana This was Abul Hassan's, not only his repentance, but his refutation upon that which he, was, which he was upon before. On page 20 of this book, this is what Abu Hassan al Ash'ari said, showing that this is a man who has made Tawbah. He's realized the errors. So, what did he say? Abul Hassan Ash'ari said in Al Ibana and Usul al volume page 20, he said, Our saying with which we speak and our belief upon which we practice our religion is to hold fast to the Book of our Lord and to the Sunnah of our Prophet وسلم, and that which is narrated from the trustworthy ones, the Sahaba, the Tabi'een, and the Imams of Hadith. What do you see the effect of the humbly scholars upon him? He said, this is what we're upon. Then he makes clear, he continues, and through that we are protected, he said. So there's no kalam now. He doesn't want to know about kalam and ahlul kalam and theological rhetoric or the kullabiyya or the mu'tis. He doesn't want to know any of that. He said, this is what we're upon. He said, and through that we are protected. Then he said, and we hold fast to whatever was stated by Abu Abdullah, Imam Ahmed ibn Muhammad ibn Hanbal. Anything clearer than that? Then he said, May Allah make his face radiant. May Allah raise his rank and reward him abundantly. And those who oppose his speech, meaning Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal's speech, then they are to be opposed. Now he wants to fight them. Because he knows what they've done to him. All of these years they misguided him. Now he wants to deal with them. They are to be opposed. That is because Imam Ahmed was a virtuous imam. He was a complete leader through whom Allah made the truth clear. And by whom he repelled misguidance. And he clarified the manhaj and the methodology of the truth. He clarified the truth. And he bridled. And he extinguished the, innovate, the innovations of the innovators. The deviations of the deviants. And the doubts of the doubters. So may Allah have mercy upon this foremost imam. A noble and great scholar of deep understanding. Anything clearer? He's left all of that and gone full circle. Quran, sunnah, hadith, sahaba, tabi'een, atwa'u tabi'een, Ahlul hadith And specifically, I stand with Imam Ahmed. Clear. What do the asha'aris today say? Will follow his second stage. Because they reject that he ever changed. Except from it, it, I'tizal, they say he changed from the Mu'tazila to the Haqq. What's the Haqq to them? Ibn Kullab. But in reality, look what he himself is saying. So this retraction of Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari clearly shows that he left a Kullabiyya. And he adopted the Aqidah and methodology of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal and his students. Especially since it is well known that Imam Ahmad... What kind of harsh stance that he held against Abdullah ibn Kullab and those who followed him. He knows what Imam Ahmed believes about Ibn Kullab. He's saying, you oppose Imam Ahmed, I'm not with you. And they are to be opposed if they oppose Imam Ahmed. This is what Abu hassan came to. Because he knew what Imam Ahmed had said about Ibn Kullab and about the students of Ibn Kullab like Al-Muhasibi and others. And it was for this reason that he ordered the abandonment, meaning Imam Ahmed... Of al harith al-Muhasibi, who was a follower of Ibn Kullah. So it is safe to assume that Abu Hassan al-Ashari had drawn close to the understanding and the creed of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. This is further proven by his visit to al Who Who is the figurehead in the time of Abu Hassan al-Ashari? Abu Hasan al-Ashari died 324. Bar Bahari was in the same era, died 329. Only five years after him. So he did the same era. So he's realized, Abu Hassan al Ash'ari, I'm not upon that bid'ah. I've written what I've written. Now he wants the scholars of hadith. Anyone in doubt about the aqidah of Barbahari, you've already, right? If you haven't, grab it and read it. Right? Regardless of what Ahlul Bid'ah say, because they're scared of this book. That's why they always criticize it. Barbahari died in 329. He was from the companions of the students of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal and he is known as the Imam of Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jamaah of his era. Imam Abu Muhammad al-Barbahari. Ta'ala. So what does Abu hassan do? He's seeking out who? He seeks out the Imam of Ahl-Sunnah al-Barbahari. As Imam al-Dhahabi mentioned under the biography of Al-Barbahari Nisir A'lam al-Nubala. So it is safe to assume that Abu hassan al-Ash'ari had drawn close to the understanding of creed of Imam Ahmad. This is further proven by his visit to Imam al-Barbahari, the Imam of Ahlul Sunnah at this time, where al-Ash'ari came in front of him, Abu al-Hassan, and he freed himself from the people of bid'ah, Freed himself. He said, I've come to you. He said, what do you want? He said, I've refuted them. And he started he said, I wrote 15 books against them. This is Abu hassan ashari is telling Bar-Bahari. bahari was still not fully convinced. Why? Because these are the vanguards of the Sunnah? They don't easy convince. So what did he do? He turned his back on him. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. As for us, we're upon what Ahmed ibn Hanbal was upon. Right? So what did Abu Hassan do? He's already written that I'm with Abu I'm with Imam Ahmed. He went to see Barbahari. Bahari. Imam al Dahabi mentions it. So this was that show was about Abu Hassan al-Ashari. That Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari Allah ta'ala. He, rip, he, that he was deceived by the Mu'tazila for 40 years, up until 300 after the hijrah. Then he came to Kullabiyya because he saw that to be the truth. Then he realized, actually, what's the big difference between the Mu'tazila and these people? They're all upon the Aqeed of Jahan. They just All they're doing is distorting and, and metamorphosizing into other types of Bid'a. So you know what? Quran, he met the scholars of the Hanabilah al-Hadith and then he came to the Haq. And as we've mentioned, having said that, it is not correct to conclude that Abu Hasan al-Ash'ari did not completely relinquish all of the influences of the Qullabiyyah. Something, it is possible that something remained with him of those influences. Because look at the challenges that he went through <coughs> in his life. But there is no doubt that he came closer to the mother of Ahlul Sunnah as is clear in his final works, such as Al-Ibana and al Diyana. So May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, have mercy upon him. There was 30 pages that I compiled. We got to page 10. There are 20 more pages. I won't promise that I'm going to come back to Manchester anytime soon, but I'll try, <laughs> inshallah, and maybe do the next 10 pages next time and the final 10 pages a third time. Inshallah, we'll see, inshallah. But I hope that this has given you something. As I say, you have to take each lecture alongside the rest of the lectures because i did not go into the details of the usul of Ahl Sunnati wal in understanding the names and attributes of Allah, because I would not have had the time to explain what I've explained. Clear? BarakAllahu feekum. So we'll conclude upon that. Wa subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik ashhadu an la ilaha illa ant astaghfiruka utubu ilayka.